This is the Inside the News podcast, investigating rape. This podcast is a collaboration between the Star Tribune and WCCO Radio. We look at how law enforcement in Minnesota handles the investigation and prosecution of rape and sexual assault. What you're about to hear is based on the reporting and audio recordings of Brandon Stahl, Jennifer Bjorhus, Mary Jo Webster, and video journalist Renee Jones-Schneider. I'm your host, Jordana Green. In our last episode, we focused on prosecution and how even with a taped confession, sexual assaults aren't always charged. In this episode, you'll hear both sides of the night Alicia Erickson says she was raped. The accused, Aaron McCullough, says it was a one-night stand gone wrong. Their story is different from 92% of others that hit the system. Here's why. I struggled with anxiety, like, for many years of my life, and I was finally getting into a good place. In the summer of 2016, 33-year-old Alicia Erickson was feeling better, living on her own, looking for a job, and looking for companionship. Well, I've seen him from time to time. I thought he was nice. I thought I was finally getting a friend. I was excited. It's like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to have a friend. <laughs> I'm going to go get a lighter, then I can go talk to, give, give me an excuse to talk to somebody finally, because I, I didn't have friends. I was always too scared to have any friends. It's like, well, finally a friend. <laughs> I was wrong. And he just took advantage of me. Aaron McCullough lived in Alicia's apartment complex. They shared a cigarette and a cigar one night after Alicia's dad dropped her off at home. She then invited him up to play video games and have a drink. Well, we were on the couch and stuff. I thought he really liked me, you know. <laughs> then he just, he got really rough. He started biting me in my breast really hard. It hurt really bad. I tried to defuse the situation by getting up to get another drink or, you know, to get away out of that situation. I was scared to say anything. I didn't want him to make him feel threatened or something, you know. I don't know, he started getting angry about stuff because he was on disability. And like, I remember him, he, was, he like just hit me in the face. It's like, I think, I don't know, that kind of blacked out after that a little bit. Sorry. <laughs> I remember waking up in the bedroom. Like, he must have brought me in there. I don't know how I got in there. I was, like, on my stomach and... He was forcing himself on me, and I was trying to tell him to stop. He just wouldn't stop. I don't know why. Aaron remembers the night differently. She had her poetry there, and she's like, hey, you want to read, the, you know, read my poetry? I was like, sure. So I started reading the poetry, and uh, I went over on the floor because she had a, a lamp over there. So I, I was reading over behind her futon, if I remember correctly. And she was sitting on there, and she started disrobing herself. And at this point, I'm like, you know what? You've got this... She she is an attractive woman. I'm not going to... I can't deny her that. You know, so you got this attractive woman. She's giving me free drinks. She obviously is interested in me. She keeps coming on to me, so... And I, I guess technically I don't have a girlfriend now, so I, I don't know. What am I worried about? So I took I took the invitation. I went over, and... and uh, you know, she started kissing me and stuff. I started kissing her back, and um, at one point, she even she asked me to give her, you know, a hickey. She's like, you know, 
stuck on my... Uh, that's where the supposed bite mark came from, I guess. It was a hickey. Um, but they said it was a bite mark in court. I don't know how they got away with that. They didn't take any molds or do any tests or whatever. They just said, oh, there's saliva on it, and it's purple. It's like, yeah, a hickey would be purple also. So she ended up leading me to her bedroom, and that's uh, when things went to the next level. She said that at one point she mentioned that she was on disability and that you got very angry, and that's when you became violent. And you threw her across the room, and she says she blacked out, and then she remembers waking up in the bedroom with you on top of her. Um, yeah, that never happened. Uh, we did talk about her disability, because I was, I was curious about this just for the psychological aspect, because uh, it seems to me like a lot of, a lot of people these days um, are caught up in some type of mental disability, like, oh, I have anxiety, or I have ADHD, or I have PTSD, and I'm like, how can everybody have a problem? Like, seemingly everybody has these problems. And uh, I did talk with her about it. I think that if you just work on it in this way, you'll be able to get over it. She made some pretty strong claims here. She yeah, was on her stomach. You were forcing herself on on her. She was telling you no, and you wouldn't stop. Okay, if you want to talk about that, yeah, the, the sex, if you want to call it that, was completely consensual, but it wasn't very long-lasting, really. It was like she took me to the bedroom, and uh, we started fooling around. I just remember looking down at her, looking into her eyes, and she looking up at me, and I just this thought flashed in my head, like, she just wants me because she's lonely or or not happy with I just remember feeling just uncomfortable and and then it just from there I just wasn't into it anymore and I was like you know what I, I've got to go home and patch things up with Maria and you know thanks for the drinks this this was just a bad idea I, we should you know we, we should just end it here then she started freaking out then I just couldn't make sense out of anything because it all happened very suddenly and I didn't know what to do so I just got up and left. So there was no violence that night? Aaron, did you rape her? No. What about her claims of violence? No, I, I think this is just something that it was it was easier in her mind for me to be a violent person than for her to have been rejected. But Alicia remembers that night as violent and terrifying. I was so scared. And I hurt so bad. He gave me a bruise on my back because he, like, I tried to sit up and he wouldn't let me. He just hit me in the back really hard. He kept me pushed down, face, face down on the bed. I was kind of like black. I blacked out after a while. I just, I didn't know what I was going to do. I think I just was so scared. I just didn't want to be in that moment anymore my body because I just kind of like let myself go and I just blacked out. Then he was gone after. I was worried of him coming back to hurt me some more. I locked my door too. I didn't want him to come back. Then my dad finally came over after because he was getting worried I wouldn't answer my phone. For two days, Alicia stayed in bed after the rape until her dad found her. He took her to the hospital. She had a rape exam done, and they called police. 
Alicia soon met St. Louis County Sheriff's Investigator Stephen B. Heinrich. Uh, introduced myself to Alicia and I apologized to her for her being in the situation she was in and uh, basically, you know, established a rapport with her and then told her that while we were talking, there's going to be difficult questions that I was going to ask and I knew they were going to be difficult for her to answer. My first impression was, you know, something terrible happened to this girl and I didn't have any reason to disbelieve what she was telling me. You know, um, yes, she invited him up. She knew him from the apartment complex. She invited him up to her apartment. They had had some drinks. They had played some video games. But, you know, she didn't ask to be, even if she said she had kissed him, she didn't ask to be beaten and raped. The police work began. Sheets were collected and Aaron was located. At first, he told Investigator Heinrich that he did not have sex with Alicia. And I simply asked Aaron a question. I said, you know, you said you didn't have sex with her. No. I said, is there any reason why I would find your DNA in her bedroom? He's like, and he says, well, what do you mean, my, like my fingerprints? I said, no, your DNA specifically on, your, on her bed sheets. Is there any reason why I would find that in there? He put his head down. His girlfriend was still out in the hallway. He kind of leaned forward and he said, yeah, we had sex and I ejaculated on her bed. So he admitted that, that he lied the first time. Yep. And at that point, I told him he was under arrest for the sexual assault of Alicia, placed him in handcuffs, and one of the other deputies transported him to jail. Why did you lie to Investigator Heinrich the first time he questioned you? Well, for one, my girlfriend was standing right there next to me, and, and they pretty much, they came in very aggressively, and here's the thing, I had no idea that I was being accused of anything. Pretty much someone barges in the door and starts asking about your sex life, you're going to be like, dude, that's none of your business. I knocked on the door, had the patrol deputy with me because I was in plain clothes and he was in a uniform. Aaron had actually come to the door, told him who I was, that I needed to talk to him about an incident that occurred. While I was talking to him, then his girlfriend also came to the door. So yeah, my girlfriend was, I just, you know, I didn't want to tell her, oh yeah, you know, immediately after we broke up, I went and slept with the neighbor, you know. that. So <clears throat> I asked Aaron if he would just step out to the hallway and uh, we kind of walked down the hallway. He sat down on some stairs there. But I really should have just told the truth, even in that moment in time, just because, you know, I didn't realize in hindsight that people would make such a big deal out of that thinking, like, oh, he's trying to hide something or whatever. Uh, he admitted they had sex. He said um, it was consensual, that um, at one point she was taking her clothes off while they were playing video games uh, and everything. And then... Um, they wound up going back to her bedroom and everything was consensual. Men who are accused of rape often say the sex was consensual. Our goal here is not to retry this case in the podcast. Our goal is to detail this case and show you why this one ended differently. There was good evidence that he had lied 
There was good evidence that we had DNA on the bed sheets. But we've seen in cases in the past, even with DNA evidence and even with bruising on the victim, only one quarter of cases that are ever brought to police are forwarded to a prosecutor. A team of journalists at the Star Tribune has been exposing flaws in the system of how we investigate and prosecute sexual assault in Minnesota. Their series is called Denied Justice. Jennifer Bjorhus reminds us of some of the data. Yeah, we've logged close to 1,400 uh, cases now from 2015 and 2016 from around uh, the state. And uh, it, the, the the conviction rate, based on the number of police reports made and that we have uh, received, um, has you know edged up a little to 8%. It's still Still very low. low. Yeah, I mean, you know, your chances of seeing a... An offender uh, convicted of a crime are, you know, those chances are very low. And Alicia had a lot working against her. She invited Aaron up to her apartment. They were drinking. She delayed reporting the rape for a few days until her dad found her. All of these things could be used against her in court, and many were. Alicia remembers having to face Aaron in court. It was hard to face him. I didn't want to see him. It's like facing a monster, and I, that's what I call them. He was a monster. And it's scary having to face somebody like that. And he's like, he just glared at me the entire time. These creepy eyes. And he just kept glaring at me and act like he was writing notes and stuff. He was just evil. He just looked just evil. Were you trying to intimidate her? No, I wasn't trying to intimidate her. I was. You have to, you know, look at a person to, to read them, and it's just polite when someone's talking to you to look at them and listen. And I'm taking notes because I'm. I took notes for the entire trial. So did my lawyers. Just because you have to be able to go back to somebody said like, oh, this is interesting or this contradicts that. I'm just doing my own assessment. Seven months after Alicia Erickson told police Aaron McCullough raped her, a jury convicted McCullough of first-degree rape. Hello, this is a prepaid call from... Aaron McCullough. An inmate at the Minnesota Department of Corrections, Moose Lake Correctional Facility. To accept this call, press zero. To refuse... This call is from a correction facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. Aaron, can you hear me? Yep, we're back. So tell me about when you heard the jury verdict. I looked at the jury, like, just to get, uh, just to try to understand just how could these people do this to me? And then I looked back over my shoulder and I looked at my mom and I looked at my girlfriend and I just, I just shook my head. I said, you know, I'll, I'll call you later. This is stupid, to be honest. I'm in prison for something, effectively over one night stand. I felt so much better. Obviously, Alicia had a different reaction to the verdict. I called out my dad and told him to. I was so excited, like, yes, <laughs> he's going to go away and he can't do this again to anyone else. And he can't come back and hurt me either. So I was really relieved.
According to the research by the journalists at the Star Tribune, only about 8% of sexual assault cases reported to police result in a conviction. So why was Alicia's case different? I asked Jennifer Bjorhus. I've asked everybody involved, and um, it, there's no single one answer. Uh, but they point to several things. Um, one is that she was uh, a very credible. She, she wasn't hiding anything. She was very honest about what they were doing, um, about the drinking, you know. Um, so she wasn't trying to explain things away. She was just a very credible and um, earnest. Uh, you know, I think the prosecutor described her as having no guile about her. Other issues are that, you know, her, she she was lucky to have a devoted dad who was willing to take the stand. doesn't hurt. The suspect had an inconsistent story, which hurt him. We had uh, a sheriff's investigator uh, who is a veteran investigator who has a um, uh, able to establish really good rapport with crime victims. And he did a great job uh, with the victim, Alicia. Then we had an incredible victim advocate up there on the range named Jeannie Olson, who's been doing this for decades. And she immediately got involved to help the victim, Alicia, get to the, you know, the meeting she needed to get to, uh, you know, f even found her a, a good therapist and, and provided gas money when she needed gas money to get to the therapist and, and taking her to meetings and holding her hand, answering questions, giving her the support she needed. Uh, and then we had a, a, a terrific prosecutor in Sharon Chadwick who... Um, took a chance on this case, was willing, you know, was uh, willing to look at all the facts. And uh, in her words, she thought it was a slam dunk. But with a statewide 8% conviction rate for rape, why did the prosecutor feel that way? I asked Sharon Chadwick. Why, in your opinion, was this case a slam dunk? It was largely because of the physical evidence corroborating um what Alicia had told law enforcement, um, her candor with law enforcement, the consistency of what she was saying, um, the what in my mind was a logical coherence to her story. What role did the advocate and the investigation play in your case? Well, the advocate was... She largely made the case, um, and the reason why I say that is, I mean, what what's expected of a victim in these kinds of cases is extraordinary, even given somebody that's relatively comfortable in a social environment. And what Jeannie did was, what she does in, in so many of these cases, is she actually... Um, set about creating a relationship, um, a relationship of trust, a relationship that wasn't, okay, we just want to get a conviction out of you, so we're going to have three meetings with you and they're going to discuss A, B, and C. She was, you know, somebody who would, who talks um, to women, who gets to know them, who will take their phone calls or texts at essentially any time. They know that they can go and they can get some emotional support from Jeannie and, and she's not going to judge them and she's going to be there, somebody who's trustworthy and reliable. 
If it was just me trying to establish that relationship, I, I don't think that I could have. You know, even if I had used all my best efforts to do so, it, it's, it, it takes skill and it takes time and it, and it takes a genuine sense of caring. And um, Jeannie is just amazing in that regard. When you're putting dollars out there for public safety, if you want to have legitimate chances of, of convictions in crimes of violence, you've got to put, it, put money into, into advocacy. As a prosecutor, when you see women get justice in the system, how does it change their lives? Just the sense that something so positive can come out of such a difficult experience, both in terms of the assault and the in the, and the trial is what I'm speaking of in terms of difficult, um, that maybe it gives some, some measure of, of greater hope and greater right to expect to be treated well in the system and to possibly find empowerment. Investigator Heinrich says it was teamwork that made the conviction happen. He admits they don't have nearly the caseload in the Iron Range that the Minneapolis or St. Paul police departments have, but they do have great communication and partnerships with everyone involved in sexual assault cases. I can only speak to, like, the Virginia Sheriff's Office and our relationship with the prosecutor's office uh, up here, and it's a very good one. And we work closely with the prosecutors as well as the advocates. And then when a case is going through prosecution, then you have the victim's advocate for the prosecutor's office that will be with the victim as well throughout the whole process. So I think this close working relationship that we have with them is one of the reasons why um, we can, you know, we have these cases and we can get them into court. Today, Alicia Erickson is enrolled in college. She volunteers with animals and still loves writing. I'm not ashamed for what he did to me. It's not my fault. He's the one who should be ashamed. Now I'm finally moving forward with my life. I'm never giving up. Nobody should have to do this. But if someone does that to you, you really need to go do that. You have to fight it. You need to get justice. Meanwhile, Aaron McCullough maintains his innocence and says he'll keep fighting the system. I'm going to keep going until I win or until I run out of options. It's, I've been locked up for two years, and I've, it's just it's frustrating. You know, I'm in prison. You want to talk about being afraid? You know, you never know what's going to happen in here. And for other men, I want to say, if, if you did it, fess up. That's all there is to it. If you didn't do it, fight it. That's you have one minute remaining. That, that's on the individual. It's always on the individual. Thank you, Trina. Bye. Aaron McCullough was sentenced to seven and a half years for the first-degree rape of Alicia Erickson. He'll serve about five. But that's not always the case. Some convicted of rape in Minnesota serve less than 30 days. How is that possible? Find out on the next episode of Inside the News, Investigating Rape. The Inside the News, Investigating Rape podcast is created by me, Jordana Green, Jared Goyette, and Dan Colhane with WCCO Radio. 
with reporting and audio credits from the Star Tribune's Brandon Stahl, Jennifer Bjorhus, Mary Jo Webster, and Renee Jones-Schneider. Star Tribune editing credits are Abby Simons, Dave Hagi, Eric Wiffering, and Suki Dardarian. <laughs>